If you would open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. We'll be looking at some verses in chapter 6 and then chapter 7 as well. We'll begin in in chapter 6, and actually we'll have you, as we did last week, pray this together with me. The title of our series is Your Kingdom Come, and the subtitle for this message is The Formation of Our Desires. The Formation of Our Desires. And um, so if we could, uh, Matthew 6, and I'll be reading from the NIV, the New International Version, uh, starting in verse 9. And it says, this then is how you should pray. And then if you would just join together in praying this with me together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then in uh, Matthew 7, we read the following, beginning in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Amen. Well, in 1979, an obscure Russian movie named The Stalker initially released to mixed reviews, but was later placed at number 29 on the British Film Institute's list of the greatest 100 films ever made. It was filmed twice, actually. The first one taking an entire year after which all the film was destroyed and lost. They had to start over and and remake it uh, over the next year. Um, It's about a man, the stalker, who's really more of a guide. I think there were some translation problems with that because he wasn't so much of what we would think of as a stalker as he was a guide. He offers to guide his clientele into the zone, which is a sort of post-apocalyptic area that's cordoned off and forbidden for anyone to enter. In the zone is a room, which grants the wishes of any who step inside. All you have to do is get to it and then enter it, and your wish is granted. The military blockade and the booby traps in the zone make the stalker's services necessary for survival. The stalker's wife, since he's somewhat new at this role, pleads with him not to go in. Fearing that she would lose him, just as the stalker's brother was lost, when a previous stalker attempted to guide this stalker's brother into the room or to the room. That stalker, who was guiding his now-deceased brother uh, to the room, uh, also died from suicide shortly after entering the room and receiving everything he truly wanted. This new stalker meets his prospective clientele at a rundown cafe bar kind of place, warning them that they have to do everything he tells them to do if they're going to survive. They can't do anything different than what he tells them. 
Traveling through tunnels and indirect routes, they finally arrive at the room where the stalker informs them that when they enter the room, they need not ask for anything. They will be granted what they truly desire, not merely what they think they desire. Then they learn how the previous stalker died. After uh, having led the current stalker's brother to his death by a bad decision, he arrived at the room consciously wishing to receive that man back from death. However, his secret desire was for wealth, and that's what was granted him. The guilt of loving wealth more than the now-dead man burdened him with such guilt that he ended his own life. In the end, when this new stalker and his two clients arrived at the room, the three of them eventually decided not to enter the room and returned home. They realized that we often truly don't know what we desire. And if given over to our desires, it may be the worst fate that could happen to anyone. Can we change our desires? Are we doomed to continue to desire the wrong things? Is prayer an equally foolish pursuit after the very thing that could destroy us? God won't give a stone to a child who asks for bread or a snake to a child who asks for a fish, but will he give a snake to a child who asks for a snake and a stone to a child who asks for a stone? Although children may not ask for stones and snakes, to be sure, they, they don't always ask for bread and fish either. They don't always ask for what's good for them, for what they actually need. A child asking for candy ice cream at every meal, or even mac and cheese, is asking without knowing it for stones and snakes. Are we doomed to perpetually want the wrong things? Can our desires be formed or shaped into the right desires? If they cannot be changed, maybe we should walk away from prayer like those three guys walked away from the room without entering it. Today we're going to see how the Lord's Prayer um, intends to shape our desires and form us, for, form in us the right desires. It intends to shape our desires and form in us the right desires. On the one hand, Jesus tells us, Ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find. On the other, when asked to teach them how to pray, Jesus did not say, Just pray whatever comes to mind. No, he tells them, how to pray, which is essentially telling them what to want in prayer. Praying as he teaches will shape our desires. Today we're going to talk about three things the Lord's Prayer is intended to form in us. It is intended to form an urgency, it's intended to form our requests, and it's intended to form our desires. So forming our urgency, forming our requests, and forming our desires. And let's begin under that first heading, forming our urgency. This prayer is not intended as a passive surrender to whatever will be, will be. Your will be done. That is not the intent of this prayer. It is an urgent request for the most important thing needed to transform the world. I say thing rather than things 
Because there's a sense in which this prayer is one request. All of it could be summed up under your kingdom come. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But all of it could be called your kingdom come. The urgency of these requests, or requests, however you want to view it, can be seen in three ways. First, in the Greek text, the first three phrases, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, those three phrases each put the verb at the front of the phrase, each which, which emphasizes or intensifies the actions, hallowed, uh, come, and done, be done. I mean, they're, they're intense because they're at the front end of each of those phrases, which would not really be expected. Secondly, each verb is a third-person imperative, which emphasizes the necessity, the urgency of the things happening. They need to happen. It is essential that they happen. And then finally, the third reason, each is also an aorist imperative verb, which, according to Greek scholar Daniel Wallace, that puts emphasis on the urgency of the matter, as if to say, it must be our top priority. So in three ways, the intensity or urgency of the request is made clear. Wallace also writes this. He says, the third person imperative is normally translated, let him do or let this, you know, with with let. But he says, this is easily confused in English with a permissive idea. Its force is more akin to he must or, uh, however, or I command him to. So taking context into account, we would not say I command him to, rather, His name must be hallowed. His kingdom must come. His will must be done. So putting that all together, it is not, let this happen, Lord, or whatever will be, will be. It's more like, your name must be hallowed. Your kingdom must come. Your will must be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is why if you hear me, whether it's in a prayer meeting or some other context, praying that prayer, that's, how you'll frequently hear me phrase those uh, pieces of the prayer. This prayer has a twofold effect, a twofold effect. We are both calling God to action in the world. It's a prayer. (laughs) So we're calling God to action in the prayer. But we are also committing ourselves to action on His behalf. One cannot yearn for the request to occur and remain inactive. That would be a contradiction. So who brings about the answer to this prayer? God and His people in partnership bring about the answer to this prayer. This prayer is designed to form a serious sense of urgency in us. But but what is it that is so urgent? What is it that is so urgent? What is it that should be our consuming passion in prayer? And therefore, life itself. Well, that leads to our second heading, forming our desires. Forming our desires. I mean, I'm sorry. Second one, request. Forming our requests. Third one's desires. Forming our requests. As I said earlier, the the whole prayer could be summed up with the one request, your kingdom come. God's kingdom is manifest where and when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. There, in that place, people will honor or hallow His name. A a simple example, and I'm going to tie my shoes so I don't keep stepping on the lace um, (laughs) as I'm preaching, which keeps distracting me here. Um, 
When, when we got to the baseball outing event yesterday, as people were uh, coming and checking their kids in, I was just making my way and introducing myself to anybody I didn't recognize and, 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 and welcoming them to the event. And there was this one couple that I was introducing myself to, but as I was introducing myself, I'm like, you look really familiar. And when she said her name, the, the wife of this couple, when she said her name, I was like, okay, well, that name's what I would have expected. So I'm, you know, I must recognize you from somewhere. So I, I said, have we met before? No. And, and, and uh, so we, we just went on. I said, okay, well, you look familiar. And, you know, that was that. Uh, well, the whole thing goes on. And three, three hours later or so, as everything's being cleaned up and parents are going, uh, most everybody had gone with their kids. And there's a few people around. She comes kind of walking over rapidly toward where uh, I'm gathered with a handful of other people. And says, hey, I, I just wanted to tell you, uh, you weren't wrong earlier when you thought you recognized me. She, she said, I, I didn't realize it, but when, when John started talking about the church, Gulf Coast Community Church, and that it's just right over here, it suddenly came back to me about six years ago when I was addicted. What? Six years ago. Yeah, six years ago when I was addicted. <laughs> Not 60. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> Something wrong with your hearing? <laughs> I'll tell you, everybody heard wrong. <laughs> That's just weird <laughs> how that could happen. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but <laughs> so she says, six years ago, I was in a really bad place, but my family needed help, and so I came. And you helped us. You helped my my. I think it was a, a brother, a brother-in-law, a kid, a, you know, so people involved around. And she said, that was the beginning of my turnaround. She said, I never had an experience with a church that was positive, and that changed my perspective on things. And I've been sober for six years. And praise God. Now, amen. Amen. She, she, at the time, she lived right in this neighborhood, but... They live in Clearwater now, but what, uh, just a, a piece of God's kindness to us to, to just be told. You know, a lot of things we won't learn until that day, but every now and then, right, you get a, a clue as to what kind of impact you make in this world. And, and, you know, praise God for that. But God's kingdom was manifest that day for her, and it made a difference as we did His will on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Well, His will is that we live in a, a manna economy, receiving from His hand daily what we need for the day and distributing the excess to those who do not have enough. Forgive us our debts, as, even as we forgive. Forgiveness is the currency of the kingdom. <laughs> and by the way, there's an abundant supply of that currency in this kingdom, so we distribute it freely. Lead us not into temptation. His kingdom is a place in which we choose rightly between the two ways to live and not fall into temptation, walking in the paths of, uh, in paths of righteousness for His name's sake, which is the opposite of being uh, led into temptation. Deliver us from evil. His kingdom is a place where evil is kept in check. We pray that we are delivered from evil, even the evil that we may unknowingly desire. Lord, deliver us from that evil as well. Amen? Amen. This week, we're going to focus on the first three requests, which in some sense are uh, the same requests. Your name must be hallowed. Your name 
must be hallowed. The point of this line isn't to tell us that we should start with our prayers with praising God, though that is fine too, nothing wrong with that. I even recommend it. But that isn't the point of that line in the prayer. God's name being honored is a theme central to the whole of the Bible from beginning to end. It's not just a throwaway line about worshiping God, which of course would be good to worship God. Babel, the city of man, Genesis chapter 11. That was where humans were in pursuit of making a name for themselves. The city of God, which in the end of time is is the new Jerusalem, is a city in which God's name is rightly honored. And the contrast between the two could not be more stark. You may have seen this year's uh, progressive insurance ad campaign with uh, Carl Winslow from Family Matters starring as Your TV Dad. First time I saw these, I'm like, what the heck? (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. Uh, Your TV dad, he has all the right answers. Solves everything by the end of the episode. And unlike your real dad, never gets upset with you. (laughs) And of course, you've got the real dad sitting there trying to have a conversation with his son. And... But the TV dad pops on the screen and starts giving counsel, different, of course, than dads. Of course, telling him to call Progressive and get better rates uh, on his insurance. But the, the, the real dad's like, what, what's this? This, just, that's a, this is not a real dad. That's a fake dad. What are you listening to him for? You see, <laughs> the only problem with the TV dad is that it's not real. But the TV dad is easy, just false. The city of man seems wonderful too, but it's built on the false foundation of hallowing the created over the creator, the secondary over the primary. We, 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 we sell our souls for things that are false, desires for things that will not satisfy, but we pursue them like the TV dad, if you will. We see this theme of God's name being honored when God delivered His people from Egyptian slavery or any number of other times He delivered them from things that they got themselves into. But it says in all these places that He did it for His name's sake. He did it for His name's sake. For, in other words, the honor of His name. Well, truth be told, He did it because even though they deserved it because of all the sinning they had been doing, They bore his name, and so he didn't want people to think that he was powerless to help his own people. So he did it for his name's sake. And then throughout the Old Testament, God would discipline Israel when they were living in such a way that it caused the peoples of the uh, nations around them to malign his name. And then when they were in the trouble of that discipline, he would rescue them for the sake of his name. To pray, hallowed be your name... Or your name must be hallowed is to pray that the Lord's name would not be maligned because of us, but would rather be honored because of us. You see, it is of urgent necessity that the people of God would bear witness to God's name honorably. It's not something we do well all the time. And the history of Scripture tells us it's not something we do well all the time. Peter tells believers in 1 Peter 2, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, 
they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. That's His name being hallowed. Why? Because of how we live our lives. Amen? Father, may we live our lives as a people, as a church, in such a way that your name is honored and not maligned in the world. And may we live together with other believers in this city in such a way that your name is not maligned by those in this city. Amen. Your kingdom must come. Your name must be hallowed. Your kingdom must come. Your rule over creation must come. And with it all the blessing that flows from living under your reign. Remember, when he reigned over creation, it was Eden. It was paradise. This is not a longing for rescue. Your kingdom come, like come back and get us out of here. It's not a longing for rescue, but a longing for more. It's not a longing for rescue. It's a longing for more. For God's kingdom has come in Christ. It is coming in the midst of us, wherever we live under His reign. And we want more of that, amen? When we live in a way that pleases Him, it comes more and more. Your kingdom come more and more, we could imply there. And then one day it will come in fullness. Well, How does that happen? How does His kingdom come? Well, that leads to the next point. The next request. Your will must be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will must be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is not a request for God's sovereign rule to be done. Since, of course, it will be. You know. He willed the planets to, to follow their tracks in, in space. Yep, and they will. Don't have to worry about that. He ordered, you know, day and night winter and springtime and harvest and all that, but that, that will go on. We don't have to ask for that. That will go on. This is not a request for God's sovereign will to be done. It's rather that God's declared will will be done. His declared will, how He called us to live our lives, specifically how Jesus called us to live. When He says to us, to give generously, when He says to us to forgive, when He says to us to love our enemies, when He says to us not to participate in evil, that's His will that this is talking about. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, and the reason it's so essential to make that distinction between earth and heaven is because we live in a place where, by all appearances, He does not rule. Right? In heaven, we know He rules, and we know that ultimately He will rule everywhere, but we're called to live on earth as it is in heaven. In a place where it will cost us to live under His rule, we still live under His rule, speculating on that day, to go back to that message from a few weeks ago. Speculating on that day. And by whom do you suppose... That his will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. By whom? Us! <laughs> we're, we're saying, Lord, help us do your will. That your kingdom might come, that your name might be honored. Which is why I find praying this prayer from the bottom up is helpful. These three requests, I like praying them from the bottom up. 
something like this. May we do not our will, but your will on earth as it is in your heavenly kingdom, so that your kingdom is manifest in the world, in order that your name will be hallowed in all the earth. The requests of this prayer, these three that we've just covered, or one, however you want to look at it, as we pray them, force us to ask for what God designed us to want. This is what we are designed to want. If you look at the manufacturer's handbook, these are the things we are designed to want. When we want other things, we are functioning in a broken way. We will not live the way we were created to live. We'll we'll be broken. In praying these things, they will at times expose our wrong desires and will always plant seeds of proper desire in our hearts. And this leads to our final point. You're thinking, it's 11.03 and he's at his final point. He's never done this before in his life. (laughs) Well, when I was in Madagascar, I finished preaching one time at at, uh, 6.30 in the morning. Of course, I started at... at, uh, uh, 5.45, so, you know. Uh, but yeah, no, I don't do this normally, but this is my longest point. <laughs> so don't think, you know, too quickly. <laughs> it is rare that I make my third one my longest, but I did today, forming our desires. It's kind of where all of this is headed. You see, we are shaped by our desires for good or ill. We are shaped by our desires for good or ill. And that film that I spoke of earlier, The Stalker, That was just the problem. People received what they wanted, and it quite often destroyed them. You see it today with the lottery. I mean, most of the people who win the lottery, it's not a good thing for them. Sadly, but it's true. Since our desires shape us into who we become, we need to shape our desires. If we want to shape who we are, we have to start at the level of desire. We have to change desire, and that's a difficult one to do, admittedly. So what do we want? What kind of people are we being shaped into by our desires? What kind of people does Christ want to shape us into? Which could be two different things, two different answers in those. How do we change what we want? How do we change what we want? This prayer is about gospel formation. The formation of our desires in order to form our whole life into the image of Christ. The formation of our desires in order to form our whole life into the image of Christ. We all have an internal compass that directs our lives. This compass that sort of guides us. A compass is quite a simple device. It it has a magnetized needle uh, that aligns with the Earth's magnetic field so that the needle always points north and south. It's aligned that way. The needle that our lives orient around is our desires. The problem is our desires tend to go in the wrong direction. They aren't always pointing true north, if you will. They don't. Somehow the magnetism has been uh, misaligned. The, The needle is no longer aligned with the magnetic field of the earth, so to speak, but to some other pole. That is what has happened to our desires. That's what occurred in the garden when they rejected God's reign in Genesis 3. The world understands well that it must continue to work at aligning our internal compass to the wrong field. And it knows well how to do it. 
But the Lord's Prayer is a tool to fight against the world's efforts at misaligning our desires. The enemy knows that he must continually train our desires. And such training is done at the level of liturgy or worship. It's done at the level of liturgy or worship. Um, I'm going to borrow from an author who's now passed. As far as we know, wasn't a believer, certainly was not a man known for his religious beliefs, but David Foster Wallace, well-known writer, um, recognized how much our desires form us. And in a commencement address at Kenyon College, he said this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly and um, uh, your own body and uh, I'm sorry. And, and when the time and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will never ever. Uh, uh, you, you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Listen, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. See, they may be evil or sinful, but that's not the insidious thing. The, the insidious thing is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that, it, that that's what you're doing. Our desires do more to control our behavior than our conscious thought. TV commercials bombard the mind with messaging about what you are to desire. I mean, for years I was like, why do companies spend that much money on a Super Bowl commercial? It makes no sense. How would you ever get the return? But they understand that just a suggestion planted in the mind is powerful over time. It's powerful. The mall was virtually dead. But at least the last attempt to salvage the concept is seen in these malls that have a far more liturgical or worshipful setup with their vaulted glass ceilings designed to lift your thoughts upward, loud music awakening your soul, and iconic images in every window surrounding your mind, and even festivities rooted in a calendar cycle. The modern mall seeks to shape our desires. It's a temple of sorts. Oh, no, they don't hand out statements of faith at the door. They don't hand out statements for you to read what they believe and and you have to acknowledge and assent to uh, because it's not theological, it's liturgical. 
You see, it's not about you assenting to a certain set of facts. It's about what you worship. It's worshipful. It uses rituals to shape desires, which is more effective than a list of beliefs. More effective than even my preaching. In sales, we learned it, we learned it, we learned it. People do not buy logically. They buy emotionally and justify it logically. It's important to have the logic available for them and let them know where to find it. But they have to want it. And if they don't want it, you ain't going to sell it. Doesn't matter. If they want it bad enough, they'll move heaven and hell to get it. Theology is important, but it won't change our lives as significantly as something that works on our desires. Why why do we move to communion every week? Because it teaches us something at a level that we need to learn over and over again. This is what satisfies us. This is the meal we need. It orients us. As James K. Smith notes, the mall doesn't care what you think, but it is very much interested in what you love. Victoria's secret is that she's actually after your heart. You see, there's no logical persuasion there, just lustful persuasion. Elsewhere, Smith says this, Christian worship is essentially, listen, essentially a counterformation to those rival liturgies, rival worship services that we have all around us in the world, a counterformation to those rival liturgies we are often immersed in, cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and longings, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. This is why worship is the heart of discipleship. Let me say it again. This is why worship is the heart of discipleship. This is why it matters that we wake ourselves up, that we gather with believers, that we declare the things we believe, that we sing, and that we encourage one another. This is why it matters. Because the world's working on it seven days a week. We can't conquer the power of cultural liturgies with didactic information poured into our intellects. In other words, you can't teach people out of their desires. We can't recalibrate the heart from the top down through merely informational measures. The orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits of desire. Learning to love God takes practice. Learning to love God takes practice. The Lord's Prayer is that kind of practice prescribed by the Lord Himself. It's that kind of practice prescribed by Jesus. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer for what we desire in two senses. It's a prayer for what we desire in two senses. First, the coming of God's kingdom is the longing or the desire of the human heart. The coming of God's kingdom is the desire of the human heart. It's what we long for. The request, your kingdom come, is a prayer for the very thing we desire. Last week we looked at that under the headings, the kingdom lost, the kingdom longing, the kingdom coming, which is really a gospel outline. You want to share the gospel with somebody, that provides you with a clear outline to to tell that story effectively. Eden was truly paradise, as we talked about last week. But if, if we say that we long for paradise, we miss the point. 
Paradise cannot exist apart from God's rule. The moment they rejected God's rule, they had to leave paradise. So it is the rule of God that we long for. It provides paradise, but it's the rule of God that we long for. You can't have one without the other. Paradise cannot exist apart from God's rule. Where God fully rules, there is paradise. Well, one might prefer to drop the metaphor kingdom, and I can understand why many would prefer to drop the metaphor kingdom with the violence that it has been associated with over the history of, of humanity. But there are two good reasons for keeping the metaphor kingdom. One is, like, it's in the Bible. So we're going to have to deal with it one way or the other. I mean, you, you can ignore it all you want, but people are going to keep running into it, so they better understand it, right? So we're going to keep the language because it's there. We have to deal with it. Secondly, because it always implies a king, which in this case is God, the kingdom of God. It always implies a king. And there is no kingdom without the king. Then you just have a dumb. Doesn't work. Can't just have a dumb. So got to have a king. While we long for what only God's kingdom can bring, we often long to receive it by our own power or through some sources other than God. Like Adam and Eve, we often think our way is better. We long for the kingdom but want it from the wrong, kind, uh, the wrong king, a king of our own making. So that's the first way that, that, that we desire. The, the, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer for what we desire. The coming of God's kingdom is the desire of the human heart. The second way that it is a prayer for what we desire is praying your kingdom come or praying the Lord's Prayer shapes our desires. Praying this prayer orients the needle of our internal compass to its proper pole. It shapes our desires. It is formative. It is formation, gospel formation. Jesus said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, of course, if you remain in him and his words remain in you, your desire will be formed into longing for the kingdom of God to come. So maybe we could better say, if you remain in him and his words remain in you, your eyes will be open to see uh, how so many natural desires lead away from the peace of the kingdom and how they must be put to death, lest you be put to death. So Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, may we remain in you. Well, just a few thoughts in conclusion here. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, it, it, it forms... Uh, our, uh, it, it forms our, the urgency of our request. It, reforms the, uh, it forms the requests themselves. And then finally, it forms our desires. Orienting our desires is not merely about, you know, God is great and man is bad. Not, in other words, it's not like, well, you just always want the wrong thing. You're so evil. That's not what I'm driving at in this. There's some truth, the fact that we want the wrong things and we are evil and we need a Savior. That's true. But that's not the point here. Hallowing God's name isn't because God is on some kind of ego trip either. It's about keeping things in their proper place. Augustine understood this well. He said, an object by its weight tends to move toward its proper place. The weight's movement is not necessarily downward, but to its appropriate position. Fire tends to move upwards a stone downwards. They are acted on by their respective weights. They seek their own place. Oil poured under water is drawn to the surface on top of the water. Water poured on, top, poured on top of oil sinks below the oil. They are acted on by their respective densities. They seek their own place. 
things which are not in their intended position are restless. Once they are in their ordered position, they are at rest. What is sinful or disordered is when we fight against our proper place. Either putting ourselves in the place of God, like water trying to stay on top of oil, or putting some other thing in the place of God. And of course, the thing that that Augustine said leads to his more well-known saying, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. We find rest in God when we place ourselves in a proper position and we orient our desires toward the things that are valuable and right. By uh, by orienting our desires, our compass, and setting us in our proper position in relation to the God of all creation, the Lord's Prayer helps us find rest in God. It orders our desires. It sets us in our proper place. It teaches us to long for the right things with the right urgency. Some of us might feel like praying the Lord's Prayer is restrictive or childish or as if we need that, that, that we've somehow learned how to pray so much better than that. We're past the basics. Yesterday at the uh, baseball, uh, youth baseball clinic, um, at the beginning, John sat all the kids down and explained the importance, had the parents there listening, explained the importance of hitting off of batting tees. You know, these kids are old enough now that they're no longer in t-ball. So they might think that's child's play. Let's get away from... And so he explained that like major league ball players spend at least an hour a day hitting off a tee. The beauty of a tee is you can... As he explained, I didn't know all this, see? But you can set it over here on the outside at low and practice a swing there and you can move it over here and inside and so forth and all these various positions and you you work at a swing in that position and you do it over and over and over again until when that ball is in that place and you see it there your swing is now second nature because you've repeated it over hey you can't get a pitcher up there to throw that pitch in the same space every time so that when in real life it happens you're ready to hit it you'd never get there it's essential to learn that way and continue learning. They, you never outgrow it if you're going to play baseball. Okay? The Lord's Prayer is like a batting tee. We never outgrow it. It will always be essential to forming our swing, so to speak. Teaching us how to pray and therefore how to live. John knows that what can keep some kids from doing what they need to do to become better is thinking that it's too simplistic. Don't ever think you've outgrown the Lord's Prayer. Rather, grow into the Lord's Prayer forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this prayer that so many people in the world know, they know by heart, they never think about it, but they could recite it when they need to, from sort of rote memory. Well, Lord, help us take it out of the closet and dust it off and use it daily in our private worship and weekly in our gathered worship to teach us the urgency of the things that you want us to ask for so that our desires are formed and shaped 
so that we long for what you would have us long for. And we form our lives toward that end. In Jesus' name, amen.